Hello. Yes, it's me, Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. And I am in a small room with somebody I like. <laughs> Doesn't sound right. It sounds very right when that person is Paolo Bacigalupi. Uh, how many awards have you won over the course of your noted career? There's a prince. All of them, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Did I miss one? Shit. I don't know. What is, what is <laughs> the... Me. Can I curse on this? This is terrible. You can curse. Already, Walmart, Walmart get mature. Really I, I, it's embarrassing, actually. Um, there, was a, there was actually a point where, where I felt really, really honored, actually, um, about the recognition that my writing was getting. And... And then there was a point where it became apparent that if I listed everything that had happened and all the good sort of commendations and all the awards and everything, that I started to sound like a jerk, <laughs> you know, because you start out and you say, well, you know, I've been finalist for the National Book Award, I've won the Prince Award, I've won the Hugo Award, I've won the Nebula Award, I've won the John W. Campbell Award, I've won the, you know, it just kind of goes on and on. And, and at some point you're like, I'm a jerk. <laughs> I'm a jerk. I'm a bad person now. I shouldn't say this anymore. I should just say, I'm a writer. <laughs> I write things. That's and, a, that's uh, you, an interesting... you just really become overwhelmed by it. In a way. It's funny. We'll mention that your books, but this is a point I really want to discuss with you because we, this is the second time on the podcast. And I think you're at a different place in your career a little mm. bit than when we spoke the first time. So uh, you have many noted books, The Wind-Up Girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Shipbreaker, The Drowned Cities, and most recently Tool of War, yep. uh, The Drowned, uh, not The the Doubt Factory. I yep. want to say The Drowned Factory, <laughs> but I, <laughs> uh, also my personal favorite, Zombie Baseball Beatdown. Thank you. I love writing that. Oh, part. no, that is, that is yeah. absolutely my favorite. Um, and The the uh, Water Knife. Yes. I don't want to leave that one out, even though it was published. By a competitor. By a different company. As I, I used to say on the Merv Griffin show. On another network. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been at this a bit, and I suppose when you were sort of like a baby author mm -hmm. and you're just getting started, I mean, you had dreams. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You had ideas. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. oh, if I could even if be only, mentioned with yeah, the John Campbell right. mm -hmm. or the, the, the Prince Award or the, the Hugo or the National Book mm -hmm. Award. I mean, and then these things came true. Yeah. Do you still get to have enjoyment from that? Uh, Just or even secretly a little bit? There, so I remember there were a couple of moments. So it's interesting, like when you're starting out, all you have is like this intense, intense desire to sort of prove yourself, mm -hmm. to try to exist, to try to prove to other people that you exist, to try to prove to other people that you're legitimate, to try to prove to yourself that you're legitimate. And, and that's, I mean, you can feel it actually leaking out through your pores. Like, this, the desire is so intense. And, and I actually, I, I used to be part of this little writing group where a couple of friends of mine who are actually journalists and I, we would all set goals for ourselves, professional goals. Um, and we had this, we called it the Little Red Bicycle Book. And it was this open journal, basically, and each, each month we would write our writing goals for the next month. You know, I'm going to write a short story. I'm going to submit to a new publisher. Mm -hmm. I'm going to finish this short story I'm working on, whatever the thing is. Or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write a pitch for a new magazine. You know, those kinds of things. And in the back of the book, though, we had our dreams, and our dreams were things like, 
to be published by the New Yorker, or published by National Geographic. They were to be to win a Hugo Award. They were to win the Nebula Award. They were things like that. You know, the, mm-hmm. the really, you know, wouldn't it be awesome if in a jillion years... I have to write it in the back of the book because I can't really let it be in the front. Well, and it's something that you don't have control over. Yeah. Like, you have control over, did I write pages today? Did I write finish a short story this month? Did I submit it to a new magazine? You know, I can do those things. Those are the things I know I can control. Can't control whether it gets published. Can't control whether or not somebody selects it for a year's best anthology. Mm -hmm. None of that's in my control. And, but you can control the work. So we focused on controlling the work. Did I do something new? Did I do something scary? Did I try something more? You know, that was the space where we worked. But in the back, there was always those dreams. Um, And years later, we actually went back and looked at that book and <laughs> and and all of the things that we had been dreaming about had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my friend Michelle Nyhaus had won these awards for reporting in science. She did publish my National Geo, like all this kind of stuff. I'd won the Hugo and the Nebula Award. Like, I mean, you know, there's something amazing about seeing your work recognized. Mm-hmm that just that steady application of work. And that was, it was, it was powerful to sort of see that, that the work effort, you know, all those pages and then back the dreams. I really distinctly remember not when I was a finalist for the National Book Award. I remember actually the thing that really stood out was when you guys sent me a book, a copy of Shipbreaker with the sticker on it. Mm-hmm. And I could touch the sticker. And there was something about that that felt incredibly real to me like like and I and I actually could focus on it and take it in in a way you felt like you'd arrived you felt like oh I did something look I I did this I I can even tell myself that I did this and almost believe it and that was that was really you know that was a moment it's interesting now you're still back in the work Mm -hmm. like you know years later you know you've won all these awards you've had you know great book sales you've had all the all of the shinies that you ever dreamed about and yet you still are showing up and you're writing your next book and you're still confused about it. It's still hard. Um, it's still scary to do. Um, mm-hmm. You still have doubts about yourself. And that's interesting. It's like, you know, my wife made a joke at one point. She's, she says that an award lasts about two days for about two days of happiness for me. <laughs> She's like, huh, two days. Okay. Because you're right back in the cycle of, yeah. oh, I have to still do the work. And you're, you're, you're out of the dreams and back in the work again. And the work is always hard. The last time we spoke, we were discussing, and I think I asked the question the wrong way. It was about the larger point versus the story. Mm, like the big theme. Yes. Yeah, the, the big idea, the big looming idea yeah. back there. Uh, this is Your largely be- moment. Yeah. This <laughs> is largely actually telling an interesting yes. story. Right, yeah. Because I've been reading Philip Pullman, and I'm sorry, Mr. Pullman, but I can hear your axe grinding from half a world away. And it just sort of interferes for me. So I guess I want to think about this over time that you've been writing for a variety of audiences and different types of stories. Do you have a moral center or a psychological center in your books? And has that shifted over time? Wow. Um, So when I write, one of the things that I sort of have to convince myself of, and, and it's complicated for me, is I need to convince myself that a story is worth telling. Uh, why this story, why in this way, and in some ways, I mean, this is, this is something that I'm not, I'm not totally delighted about, about mm-hmm. my process, actually, is that I need some reason to justify the frivolity of telling stories. 
which is, yeah, like a weird Protestant work ethic stuff that comes from my very Protestant hippie father, I think. <laughs> it's really strange. Okay, but my like, job, jaw has dropped twice in that sentence. The frivolity uh, of stories, but Protestant hippie it, it's that, work ethic. <laughs> no, it's this terrible thing. My, my father was this incredibly liberal kind of hippie guy. You know, he's a nice guy, but he's, you know all about you got to work you got to be dutiful you got to be like you know you got to do the right thing you know like there's like you know it's very you know bang 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 kind of you know like and and i think that stuff gets in your head in some way and so you know you feel like okay you're doing this goofball thing you get to write stories right Woo! but on some level you sort of can't escape the feeling that if you aren't of use or of purpose of value providing something of value or purpose then maybe you're just you're just yeah just goofing around and so that's and this is something I continue to wrestle with actually because because I enjoy reading stories just as stories and I enjoy escape and I enjoy and I don't believe that stories have to have some moral drive or some values drive or anything like that I don't think that's a necessity and yet for me a lot of times that ends up deeply embedded in my work yeah it's so anyway so there's there's some complicated stuff behind that about like why i I end up doing this kind of like this is going to be about a big theme why Mm -hmm. is it about a big theme partly so i can justify having all the fun of telling stories (laughs) um the 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 balance between sort of the axes that you're going to grind versus the story you're going to tell is is a little bit fuzzy and you know i like to tell myself that i've I've managed that balance. But, you know, sometimes people will be, will feel like, oh, no, your agenda is way too obvious. You know, I've seen that with, um, actually, my favorite one of these, actually, is probably with Zombie Baseball Beatdown, where where some very angry parents are really, really offended that I have portrayed immigrants as decent human beings. <laughs> and, and, you know, you're, you're just, you think, you know, they're like, I was looking for a book with zombies and baseball in it, and here you've put immigration issues and worst of all you've represented immigrants as decent hard-working people no you, yes no i kid you not like there are like, uh, you, you want to show can, me the receipts no, on that you, one. you can you can go and you can look right on amazon there are reviews like that like it's amazing you know and and you're like i think you're offended that i just presented immigrants as human beings to your child and your child believes it your child believes that all people actually are people and that all people do have basic, you know, deserve basic levels of respect and interaction, you know, like there's, your child is far more humane than you are as a parent. And that's why you're so offended right now. And, and so you see something like that. And that person says, oh, my agenda is far too obvious. I mean, ah, too bad. (laughs) I I always want to flip the script on that. Um, There's a book we did many years ago with Sharice Miracle Harper. It's Note Cards for My Life or something like Mm -hmm. that. It's just, it's just a it's a cute little book. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. A school story. Right. 12-year-old girl. Right. Gets a diary and whatever. It ended up on the ALA's 10 most challenged list one year. Okay. And I was like, well, what's in that book? Right. And it was simply that one of the adults in the book was a lesbian. Uh, and this was not problematic. It uh-huh. was a matter of fact. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so I think, you know, people talk about the agendas. And, I'm a, and I was like, well. Why is your agenda to erase people? Right. Why is your oh yeah oh, agenda? Yeah. So I always want to ask that 
Please well, say so, to me why that is. Well, so so what 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 people are really reacting when they say, "Oh, you're grinding an axe." What they're really reacting to is they're, they say, "You're grinding a different axe than I want to grind." <laughs> Yes, and, and, and that how is dare fair. you? That's fair. And, and I mean, you know, and and so I mean, you know, to me though, I mean, ultimately, like you know, when you know, there, there's things. So there are things that people are going to be reactive against. It mm -hmm. strikes against their value set or whatever automatically, um, or it seems too obvious. I think that there is a real danger when you're writing sort of values, deliberately values oriented yeah. fiction, which a lot of my stuff is. There is a real danger that you can move into this didactic, preachy, yeah. very sort of of course, sort of space, you know, of course, the good guys are going to have the good values, of course, the bad guys are going to have the bad values, you know, of course, the good values will triumph, you know, and it becomes very obvious where things yeah. are going. And, and you see that in all kinds of political fiction, yeah. you know, you'll see that in communist fiction, feminist fiction, environmental fiction, whatever the values fiction, conservative fiction, you know, like Christian fiction, all of these things, when they move into this zone of like, here's my values, blatantly laid out, you're going to have a problem probably because the the reader already knows what's supposed to happen and they know where it's supposed to go. For me, the way that I can sort of avoid that oftentimes um, is that I will try to make the setting define my values. Um, the setting will demonstrate my values in some way or another. The characters oftentimes will not automatically represent, you know, so if I'm writing about the environment or whatever, my characters will never be environmentalists you know like that's not where I want them to be I don't yeah. want my heroes to be environmentalists I want my heroes to be normal people trying to survive in an environmentally devastated future normal people trying to survive devastating climate change and drought normal people trying to survive massive hurricanes you know you don't need to have a values conversation with the characters because the environment itself is going to make the values conversation. Here comes a Category 6 hurricane, city killer. It's going to destroy everything. There's your experience. Now the characters can just run around and be themselves and try to survive. Like, and, and I think that that's where there's a lot of fertile space for your, you to work as an author where you mm -hmm. can tell an interesting story of basic human conflicts, of survival, of you know, trying to figure out what the best path through is, whatever that is. And you can leave some of the um, the didacticism of, well, as you know, Bob, none of us should have done this because that. And as you know, Bob, the evil overlord who burns oil has to be destroyed or whatever the thing yeah. is. You know, you're just like, you know, the evil overlord's burned all the oil already. We just live in their broken future. Like, so... Uh, uh, Tool of War yeah. is simply a 21st century version of Hatchet by Gary Paulson. Okay. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> well, no, as you're describing it, of just, you know, in this landscape, <clears throat> setting up the landscape, and it's a story of survival mm -hmm, and... Mm -hmm. and... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, th I don't know that it's that much of a stretch, but I, I accept your chortling. <laughs> Partly because chortle is a good word. Right. It is interesting to me that your books are in many ways about consequences written extremely large. Yeah. That your individual characters are not so much fighting a system. The system has won. Mm -hmm. The man mm -hmm. has triumphed. Yeah. Whatever By the time my characters come on the scene, all the bad decisions have already been made. Well, all not of all of them. <laughs> there's, there's more to be had in the stories, but but the, the but the um but the the landscape defining decisions have been made. 
Um, yeah. the, the human environment decisions have been made um, again and again and again. You know, in Shipbreaker, we've already decided to burn all the oil and the sea levels have risen and the hurricanes are terrifying and cities have disappeared because they've been swamped and all mm -hmm. the coastlines have changed. And, you know, okay, now we start. How are people surviving now? The decision's already, you know, by the time Naylor is, you know, digging through an, an, an old freighter or oil tanker yanking out the copper wire for recycling, a whole sequence of other decisions yeah. have gone on that made the Gulf Coast the way it is, that made it this devastated place, that made New Orleans disappear, um, that makes Florida disappear, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, so, and in the same way with the drowned cities, all of the political dysfunction yeah. of Washington, D.C. hasn't just become, you know, thin political dysfunction, it's become an inability to communicate with one another. It's become civil war. It's become a civil war that's lasted so long that only children are left fighting it. You know, so by the time Malia and Mouse come on the scene, all of the decisions have been made. Yeah. Like the, 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 the logical consequences of a system, and that's what I'm oftentimes interested in, is if I look at a trend right now and ask if this goes on and it becomes more and more exacerbated and if it becomes more and more intense, how will that shape the world? You know, so it could be climate change or it could be political dysfunction, you know, bioengineering, whatever that thing is. It says, okay, take this and let's run with it. Like, how many more bad decisions does it take and what do we get at the end of it? Now let's live in that future. Um, and then so with Tool of War, a lot of it is, you know, again, it's set in the same world as Shipbreaker. And so it's a future where, you know, a lot of countries have changed um mm -hmm. are non-existent anymore but corporations still exist because um, oh, they're people um, right exactly they're they're undying people in fact corporations exist they've militarized themselves and we see these trends already you know mm -hmm. we do have military corporations we do have you know private armies we do have we do have a shaking of the idea of what it is to be a national entity versus a corporate entity you know there's there's a mm -hmm. lot of this stuff already and so you just take those trends and you spin them out but also we're seeing, you know, technologically, we're seeing a lot of experimentation with, with genetic engineering. We're seeing, you know, we're, see, we're starting to mess around with the human genome. You know, you're starting to see those first experiments coming out of China and stuff like that. And you mm -hmm. think, where can this possibly lead? Where is this, what, what are the possibilities here? And what are the ethical implications? And then, and so a lot of my, in a lot of my futures, like, you know, I go on the assumption that we have no ethics and we just go with whatever's right in front of us. And so that's how you end up with Tool. It's like, you know what? Let's bioengineer a super soldier. Yeah. Why not? Like, mm -hmm. you know, let's give him some dog and hyena and tiger. And, like, let's make him eight feet tall and make him super fast and super smart. And then let's send him out, like, you know, cannon fodder and see how many of our super soldiers survive. But it doesn't matter because they aren't really people anyway. So <laughs> off they go. <laughs> well, Marks them into the meat grinder. and I, Which is sort of what we do with, you know, our soldiers now, actually. We just take the poor. <laughs> instead yeah the people without options i i think it's interesting reading tool of war again recently a picture popped up on my screen and i and i hope somebody wins an award for this picture because in the space of that time in those couple of weeks i mean we had uh harvey and irma and mm -hmm. earthquake and the first earthquake in mexico city mm -hmm. in mexico i think it was just south of mexico city but also the forest fires in oregon right being from Portland and loving okay. the gorge, mm -hmm. my most favorite place on earth, just my heartbreaking of the fires. Right. But there's a picture of mid-30s gentlemen in cargo shorts playing golf. I while saw the that mountain photo burning is on fire behind them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading Tool of War and I that picture popped up against all the other things that have happened that were happening at that point and, and since then, uh, another earthquake in Mexico and and Maria 
Mm-hmm. And there's there's something else. Right. Nate, I think, is coming right going now. Going for New for Orleans. New Orleans. Right, yeah. It took me back, actually, to my first experience of reading Shipbreaker when it was a manuscript. Hmm. And not knowing if I was what genre I was reading, because I had seen stories of shipbreakers in Bangladesh, right. a country that is rapidly melting into the ocean. Right. And to see the consequences, the landscape that you're proposing is not actually that fictional. Yeah, it's extrapolated. It says if we did these bad things and we keep doing these bad things, then we'll get a different landscape. It's inevitable. And you, you know, yeah, I'm actually a prophet. (laughs) Don't start with me on this. You know I went to divinity school. You know I will say that's true. You know, it's, you don't have to be a prophet to look at data and say that data tells us that if we pursue X path, X result will result. Yes. Um, This is science. This is Logical outcomes. We, you know, human beings do logical outcomes all the time. I can pursue a logical outcome that says if I write hard and keep writing and keep improving, eventually I'm probably going to have a writing career. Like that, that can happen. I can mm-hmm. build that future. You know, if I keep burning gasoline and I keep dumping carbon into the air, then eventually I'll have risen sea levels and ruined coastlines and massive hurricanes. So you you say this about prophets but you know it is true that before i was in publishing i was doing a phd in biblical studies mm-hmm. and one of my areas of of study was thinking about stories as value delivery mechanisms okay. and in the old testament or first testament hebrew bible however you wish to whatever nomenclature you wish to use the neviim okay prophets these were not people who saw the future these were people who told truth most brutally Mm. who looked you in the eye and said this not the comforting right fairy tale you'd like to tell yourself about your moods and motivations right no this is the truth mm-hmm. i'm going to tell you the truth right and here these stories that we're telling are the things that let us access truth in the most comfortable way we can giving us the least amount of scars while still delivering the truth yeah of of what is really happening I think that's a slightly confused point of what I want to make, but we're in a room with a red carpet, so I think it'll do. (laughs) But do you think, or do you wish, either one, either verb, do you think or wish that your fiction is actionable? Um, I think... You've never thought about that before, have you? I'm trying, no, I'm trying to think about, there's, there's, there's a bunch of different, there's a bunch of different sort of angles on, on that question. So, is my fiction actionable? So ideally, when I'm working on these stories, they create points of reflection for readers. And ideally, the stories, the stories in and of themselves, you experience the story, it's an adventure, it's, you know, there's thrills and chills, there's danger, the characters, you know, fight their way through, whatever. The story also, in its weird sort of futuristic sort of distorted qualities strongly reflects our present in some yeah. way. And people may not notice that initially. Like, you know, they read Shipbreaker and, you know, they see hurricanes, you know, but they don't, and they see the hurricanes in the book and they see that New Orleans is drowned or whatever, but it doesn't hold for them yet. Yeah. But now, Irma. Irma. Irma, a Harvey. Maria. You know, all of these coming in, 
now is the moment that you know people will sort of ask you questions on Twitter. Is this what you were thinking about when you were thinking about Cat Six Hurricanes? Is this what you were thinking about when you were talking about city killers? Is this what you were talking about? And suddenly there's this moment where they're like, oh, we're moving into that future. And they see that we've taken a step along a path. You know, they see, and they didn't see that before. They yeah. weren't, they didn't take it seriously before. But now, because the book created this highly intense future, when they see a news event that m mirrors into it, suddenly they actually see that, oh, this is a stepping stone toward it. They understand they're on a path. They feel that they're on a path mm -hmm. in a way that they didn't before. Um, does that become actionable? God, I hope so. But, mm -hmm. but, um, but the, the, the objective is to hold up a mirror and say, this is our present and this is where it leads. This is our present. You, you thought you were reading about the future. You thought you were reading about a speculative world or whatever. Oh, no. Now you just took another no, step on the path. No, you're reading contemporary realistic fiction. And you've taken a step on the path yeah. towards your future, your children's future. You know, it's the same thing with like something like Water Knife where... You know, I wrote about drought and climate change, and somebody, you know, will send me a story about an article about Lake Mead and how low it is mm -hmm. on the Colorado River, you know, and suddenly they're, they're keyed to the idea that, you know, a drought and water scarcity on the Colorado actually means something and is important in a way that they didn't before. Oh, that's a stepping stone. Lake Mead is at record lows. That's a stepping yeah. stone towards bad future. Yes, it is. Um, and, and ideally what you're sort of highlighting is these quiet moments that add up to something very, very big. Um, and, and that's, that's sort of the goal. Um, you know, does it, ideally you hope that there's some kind of actionable sort of outcome that comes from that. Um, but they are not in themselves calls to action. Yeah. Um, they are calls to reflection and awareness. And, you know, then after that, you know. We all have our own, you know, sort of sense of agency or not. So now you've been at this a bit, and and most of the back of that little red book has has probably moved to sitting on your wall or a mantelpiece or yeah. on the back of your toilet yeah. somewhere. Have you put new things? You don't have to say what they are, but have you put new things in the back of that little red book? You know, I... Uh... I've got a couple of ideas about things. Um, I've got a couple of things, you know, sort of like, oh, that would be a bigger reach. You mm -hmm. know, what's the next big reach, you know? And then you, you create new kinds of action items to kind of like, well, how would I get towards that really big reach if I wanted to go there? There's some of that stuff out there. A lot of stuff for me actually is kind of turned inward as well because like for a long time it really was the focus on the external, like, mm -hmm. you know, trying to accomplish things. A lot of times now, actually, where I'm focused is how can I continue this and what are the action items I need? What do I need to be doing in order to continue to create, to continue to find joy in this, to feel stable and healthy mm -hmm. um, while I do these things? Because it turns out, you know, at one point I was willing to set a lot of stuff aside and just sort of focus on like, okay, I'm going to write. I'm just going to be this machine. I'm just going to keep going. And it turned out I set a lot of things aside you know, about my own well-being. And it's like, oh, no, actually, you got to take care of that stuff, too. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's a lot of it's about, like, in, for me, is a lot about, it's about balance now. Um, mm -hmm. It's about, it's about the long game of kind of being around, like, the goal, you know, the big goal really is, you know, I want to be here in 20 years, still creating stories and, and getting something positive out of that. So um, do you think... Personally. Um, do you think... Emotionally yes. and stuff like that. Because um, it turns out it's really actually stressful to expose yourself 
and your your imagination and your 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 center to the outside world. And I had no idea about that at the when I started out. It was like, oh, I've actually just opened up my entire guts and oh, that's a pretty exposed spot to be in, actually. And so a lot of it's actually trying to find a good balance and a healthy balance where it's like you're still telling really true stories and also sort of maintaining some sense of, of well-being at the same time. Has any of this changed from encountering your readers? Uh, yeah, well, sure. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, and I don't mean that to say from, I don't want that to be the most basic level of, of the exposure point, mm -hmm. you know, with that sort of, why did you have to make immigrants decent people in your fiction? Right, yeah, yeah. But more, the deeper, more serious reader responses to your work. So let, you know, put it at that more elevated level of people who are really engaging and really thinking about it has encountering them and their reader response and maybe they're seeing things in your book you didn't know were in there. Right. Has that changed your approach? You know, it's a whole gamut. So there are some things where you're actually uh, deeply renewed, actually, by interacting with your readers, where, you know, you'll meet a kid and they read Shipbreaker and they thought it was the best thing ever or whatever. Um, there's a kid in my town, actually, who I just handed out Tool of War to because he's my friend, my, my son's friend, and and he was over visiting and he saw the copies and he was like, oh, oh my God, can I have one? You, you, you give this kid this book and he's like so excited. And there's something in that that's really renewing. You know, when somebody writes to you and talks about, you know, how the book affected them or why they love it. Um, when a parent writes to you and says, oh, you know, I gave my kids zombie baseball beatdown and, and they loved this thing and I really love this thing too. And, you know, you have these moments that are, that, that remind you kind of that you're affecting people's lives and yeah. that you're doing good in the world. That's really renewing. That sense of exposure though, without question goes up as well. Mm -hmm. And the sense of like, when you first start out writing, you're just making up stories. Yeah. Um, and and you get a stronger and stronger sense over time, oh, no, I'm not just making up pe stories. People are reading my stories. And you think, oh, my God, that's horrifying. Um, because you do have this sense, like, I'm just making stuff up. Like, I'm just, I'm just hacking my way through. I'm just a normal person. Like, I'm doing my best, but, like, you know, I'm just kind of chipping away at the story and hope something holds together here. And you can kind of see all the, you know, the, the gum and the string and stuff that you've used to tie a story together. And, and you're kind of hoping the whole thing holds together and you feel like a fraud in some ways. Yeah. And, and you're thinking like, oh my God, people are gonna, you're thinking, oh my God, people are gonna read my, <laughs> we have rats. <laughs> and then gentle listeners, we needed to stop because someone next door started making a lot of noise. We pick up now. So I think that sense of your books going out in the world does change your perspective. Yeah. Um, and, it changes, a, and it changes your relationship with the page because yeah. it's no longer a private experience. Yeah, um, and it's almost like the fictional becomes real, similar to your books, mm. where the speculative circumstances are now made flesh. Right. Initially, you're writing, you know, thinking, oh, people will read this, but it's not... It's not made flesh yet until those eyeballs and those ear yeah. ears for audio are on there. And then 
it's really alive in a way that you can't control. Yeah. That's, that's always fascinating for me to discuss with authors. Paolo, thank you so much for dropping in. I know you're going to do Comic-Con this weekend yep. and talk about uh, all sorts of interesting, fun things. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I did. Thanks. I enjoyed yeah. it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, listeners, through the virtual waves and whoever is taping up a victim next door through the walls, <laughs> this has been Victoria Stapleton for the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. With me has been... Uh, noted interesting person, Paolo Bacigalupi, his latest masterwork, because it really is. It's a brutal, hard truth of a book. That book is Tool of War. It should be on your shelf now. Bye-bye. <laughs>